Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. This is a non-judgmental place to explore spirituality, and we're so glad you're here. This is a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we greatly appreciate your support. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Be sure and like, share, and subscribe to any of the social media content platforms that you're using. And then if you go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, you can make a one-time donation or with a monthly subscription, you'll gain access to our bonus content. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. We're glad you're tuning in to this episode. Today I've got Rob Elsie, who is a founder of, there we go. For those of you who are watching, he's got his uh, hoodie on in the name of Grace. It's a nonprofit, and we're going to dive into that here in a little bit. Cool. But he has been uh, partnering with Oxford Houses now for several years yeah. and working in the recovery community. And so uh, I was so thankful Rod, uh, Rob <laughs> Rob gave me a, uh, a direct message just not too long ago. Oh, a few weeks ago introduced himself and uh, was like, hey, let's connect. And like anybody that's working in the recovery world is, uh, is my friend. I've, I've been in that world now for three and a half years, and I've, I've grown to love it and love the people in it. So uh, thanks for your, your work, your heart. Oh, thanks for taking, your, the, your taking ministry. the message. Appreciate it. But yeah, let's get a, let's get a little backstory first. Your, sure. kind of your, I like to get a little origin story. Where were you born? Sure. Where did you yeah. grow up? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about maybe your your faith journey early on, like your family. Where was yeah. your family? Did you raise? Were you raised in a faith tradition sure. of any kind? Yeah. That, that kind uh, of stuff. Born and raised uh, for the most part in Gladstone, Missouri. I think we originally lived out south <clears throat> when I was first born. We moved. I think we migrated to the Northland when I was about four or five. Um, traditional family. A mom and dad had an older brother. Uh, I tell this story. My parents were a little bit of a different generation. They were older when they met, um, and I was. Uh, there's eight year gap between my brother and I. We were a Catholic family, so kids just came when they came, right? Um, kind of traditional how it happened. And so I'm sure when uh, my dad came home and he was 45 years old, my mom said, "Hey, guess what? We're gonna have another baby." He probably said, "Huh." Uh, but yeah, it, um, so yeah, I think if my dad was alive, I'm 57, he'd be 101, 102. So wow. he was of the great generation. He was a World War II vet. Mm. Um, and so consequently, as I look back, I was raised just a, with a little different set of standards and rules than a lot of my friends, not in a bad way or a good way. It was just different. You know, they were literally a generation older than most of my, my friends' parents. So that kind of stuck with me, uh, just some values, I think. Mm. Um, you raised Catholic, raised in the church, was an altar boy, uh, went all through uh, parochial school through sixth grade, uh, switched over to public school at that point. Um, you know, it uh, stayed in my faith for the most part, uh, fairly faithful. Through, you know, adulthood, you kind of go in and out. Um, uh, had a, a marriage that uh, that failed after about eight years, and that can kind of test your faith a little bit sometimes. And uh, remarried many years ago, 24 years ago, and uh, have a very strong, strong faith. Uh, take the kids to church every Sunday, and uh, it's uh, you know God. My faith in, in Christ has been a, a big part of of the work I do in recovery, as mm. well as helping me get through some difficult situations in life. So yeah, uh, been a residential realtor for 20 some years since 2001. Was in manufacturing management prior to that. 
Hmm. Uh, been a great way to make a living. So I've been kind of a self-employed entrepreneur, so to speak, you know, footloose and fancy free. So yeah, enjoyed that a lot. So been a blessing. Yeah. What? And so you, which high school did you go to? Uh, Oak Park. Okay. Yep. Oak Park. Yep. And um, I was a Park Hill guy, you know, so yeah, yeah. a little, little before you. Yeah. I think a few years ahead of me. Yeah. Uh-huh. Northland looked different back then, didn't it? Yeah. It's funny. We, I tell this to people like, if you lived in the 80s back then, we didn't know kids from other high schools. It was Park Hill was the other end of the world. You know, <laughs> you went across I-29 and the world fell off, right? And maybe Metro North Mall, you'd run into a few different colored letter jackets, but everybody stayed in their own little zone, it seemed like. Yeah, Barry Road was a two-laner. It was. And hilly as heck. Oh, yeah, dangerous almost. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, kids would try to you know catch air over yeah, those hills yeah, yeah, yeah and sometimes not always end up well like when we so great gladstone you know the county seat was liberty so you'd go to title your car get license plates it was like an all-day affair to drive to liberty out berry road you yeah know? and now it's a three-minute jaunt down 152 and i was you know growing up around park hill park parkville there you had to go to Gladstone to find a stoplight in the Northland. Yeah. That, I mean, that was the only stoplights in the Northland. <laughs> and when I moved to the Northland in the early 70s, it was the only movie theater yeah. in the Northland. Was that yeah. little, that Antioch Gosh, movie. There it, was no other place to see a movie in the entire Antioch. Northland. Yeah. yeah. Is that little spot. Gosh, yeah. Yeah. North Oak was a two-lane road. I mean, no every, sometimes we'd go to a, the drive-in over there on 291, yeah. you know, and yeah. check <laughs> I was like, there, there. I think there was that little Armor movie theater on in North Kansas oh, in North City. Yeah, yeah. I do remember going there a couple of times, but it seemed like they had. I don't know the history of that one. They had limited release. I I interviewed the a guy who runs that place now, and I. Kind I think we we now. yeah we talked about that, but. At any rate, well, that's cool. So, um, so what. When you grew up Catholic, did you continue your faith journey through your young adult years? What? Uh, you know, I both lost both my parents pretty young. I was 15 when my dad passed, and I was 20, 21 when my mom passed. So shortly after my mom passed, and I probably didn't practice my faith a whole lot. Still believed. We'd go to church maybe on a holiday, you know, kind of the, the run-of-the-mill Catholic. You show up on Easter and, and Christmas and, uh, you know, receive your sacraments. But uh, mm-hmm. didn't practice it a lot. Uh, probably until getting married uh, the second time around. And my wife and I have been uh, fairly consistent with our faith. Um, uh, did quite a bit of stint. My wife uh, joined the Catholic Church, gosh, a long time ago now. My brother actually is a clergy. He's a deacon in the Catholic Church, teaches religious ed over at Pius. So, mm, nice. Um, but yeah, currently in a, uh, going to a Presbyterian church here in the Northlands mm-hmm. and enjoying it a lot. So, okay, yeah. good, good. Yeah. And... Uh, I, I'm curious too. What your career path out of high school was? It always have you dabbled in a lot of different things, or you know, you... Uh, I skipped college, Fred. Uh, I thought I was going to be a professional drag racer. Uh, turns out that's a little harder to break into than just having a fast car. So uh, uh, that didn't really work yeah. out. Like, um, like multi-million dollar sponsors? Yeah, exactly, yeah. right? And, you know, at 18, you don't think that. It's like, oh, I can drive a car and I like it. I'm a good mechanic. We'll do this. And uh, um, got a job with a friend of mine from high school. His dad had a small manufacturing company, went to work. Uh, and it was small, maybe eight or nine guys. And he told the foreman, he said, you'll probably wind up firing this kid. He's kind of a piece of work. Uh, he'll probably show up drunk or wreck his car and not be able to come to work. But, you know, we'll give him a shot. And uh, 
about that same time, my mom had taken ill and I really had to start supporting myself. So, uh, I just worked a lot and I was fairly mechanical and it was a machine shop. So whenever there was a new machine to learn or build, I got involved and, uh, wound up running the joint by the time I was 22 years Hmm. old. So just that evolved in, you know, I figured out the guy managing the shop made a few dollars more an hour than the guy running the machine had a lot more stress, but made a little more money. So fell into that career accidentally. So kind of worked uneducated as more of a, like an industrial engineer mm. uh, for about 17 years, actually in oh, different, wow. different companies. That's my wife and I met that way. She hired me to be plant manager of a local manufacturing company. She was head of HR. So okay. yeah, we met in the interview. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Well, that's a good interview. Yeah. <laughs> it was. It worked get, out real well. Several, get, several. Get several extra cases. credit for that one. Yeah. <laughs> Got the job and the girl. <laughs> Not simultaneously, right, though. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. You have, to, you have to follow the rules, for right? For sure. Exactly. Yeah, it was a challenge. <laughs> oh, man. Well, so tell us a little bit about um, what got you into your nonprofit in the name of grace. How did, how sure. did that, e- how did that evolve? Sure. Um, uh, and, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get some backstory on that and then, then kind of dive into sure. the actual work itself. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I am, uh, not a person of long-term recovery in the traditional sense. I think, I think when I really think about it and as I dive into a lot of self work, uh, you know, doing personal inventory, I think we all struggle with different types of addiction, but I don't struggle with traditional types. Uh, you know, we think of alcoholics as people that it enables or disables them from being able to be functioning at their job and things. And we think of addicts as, you know, the, the bottom of the barrel, you know, they're out stealing catalytic converters to buy drugs and things like that. And I certainly don't fall into any of those realms, uh, but neither do a lot of people that I know in recovery either. But we'll talk about the stigma here in a minute. Um, I was... Uh, had the misfortune. I have a I have a 30 year old daughter, and she was 18 years old, graduating high school, back in 2011. And we knew we watched her senior year. She left sports. Uh, the group of friends changed. Uh, she was changing. We were watching it happen like a typical parent. And she's actually my daughter from a previous marriage. She's my wife's stepdaughter. She lived with us full time since about eighth grade. Um, and we kind of knew that she was probably dabbling in, in marijuana. We knew she drank. Um, you know, I hadn't really had a lot of bad experiences really. Uh, but right after graduating high school, she was going to take a real estate class and, be, and get her real estate license to be kind of assistant for me and thought maybe she'd take that as a career path and had her enrolled in college up at uh, Northwest Missouri state and, um, just sat down with her on a Sunday night and said, Hey, you know, I know you're, you're using weed and it probably just needs to, to stop. You need to kind of get serious about life. And uh, she got angry and literally ran out the door with nothing except the clothes on her back. And we didn't see her for the rest of the summer. Uh, got in touch with some of her older friends that we knew real well. And they said, yeah, we've been meaning to reach out to you guys. It's, it's a lot worse than you think. And then found out that she'd been probably getting high on marijuana every morning before school for the whole last second semester of school. And it was starting to spawn into, you know, experimenting with other drugs, too. So... Um, dealt with that for about a year. Uh, she got herself enrolled down at uh, uh, UCM and uh, got in there and didn't have a way to pay for it. We reconnected, helped her out with school, got through two semesters of school, came home that summer, and she was a mess, just a mess. And uh, we knew that something had to be done. She was, uh, unfortunately, her drug of choice had spun into benzodiazepines or Xanax, and it uh, 
had a pretty good grip on her. So got her into a treatment center down in Texas after failing out of a couple uh, local inpatient or outpatient treatments and had a great experience. Uh, got her clean, got her sober, got her into an Oxford house. Um, and then, you know, thought she was, <laughs> and we were early into it. And I remember hearing in treatment that, uh, you know, relapse is part of recovery. And of course, we're very naive at this point and very young in, into it. And we're like, oh, no, 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 we've got this. She's got it. She's good. She'll be good. She'll be fine. She's got it. She's, she's clean. She's sober. This piece of cake. Um, yeah, that wasn't the case. And still to this day, unfortunately, isn't the case. But it, it did start our journey into being uh, parents of an addict having addiction impact our family in a very negative way uh, and really, for the most part, kind of consuming a lot of our, our time, our resources uh, for the next 10, 12 years. Mm. So, yeah, even up to this point. Yeah. Yeah, so a daughter who uh, is is still wrestling, is that she, correct? She is, yeah. She is currently still what, what we would call in, in her active addiction. So she's, uh, unfortunately, the, the uh, benzodiazepines eventually spun into methamphetamine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so methamphetamine is her drug of choice, and anybody who's listening or watching knows anything about methamphetamine, it, it uh, impairs you cognitively so bad that coming out of meth is probably, honestly, the hardest drug to come out of, even harder than, than opioids because mm. of the cognitive damage it does. It takes so long to heal. Um, so, yeah, she's, uh, she's had a few bouts here and there. Um, but, yeah, as, as far as I know, she's still out there somewhere in her active addiction. So. And, so, and this has led you into your second round of parenting. Is that right? Yes, sir, it has. <laughs> yeah, so we have uh, Mariah and Joey. Raya, I call her for short. So Raya is five. And Joey is three, and they are my biological grandchildren from my daughter uh, that we have had the blessing of taking on as our own. We actually, the adoption was finalized September 11th of 2020. Uh, We got, got, gosh, guardianship and and kind of, I guess, possession of Mariah when she was 19 months. Uh, And we've had, and my daughter was pregnant with Joey when she came to us with Raya. And we kind of ran an inpatient treatment center out of our house to keep her sober till Joey was born. Uh, so we've had guardianship of Joey since his first breath. And mm-hmm. so, uh, yeah, we've in adoption the same time we adopted Mariah. So shortly, probably within eight or nine weeks after Joey's birth, uh, our daughter Caitlin relapsed. And we kind of thought she probably would headed back to the street life and uh, left the kids behind with us. So we're blessed. Yeah. Middle age, raising two little ones. So yeah, it's a interesting That's what journey. I say That's, you're, you're my hero. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, you getting in the name of grace going. Sure. Because obviously, you know, addiction hits home with you in a deep, deep, deep way. Right. Yeah. And so you've allowed that to develop into um, trying to take action to help people in this yeah. space and life. Yeah. So grateful for that. Thank you. People, people who take time to reach people in addiction, and it's just uh, so important and so powerful. So tell us a little bit about in the name of sure. grace how that a, there's there's it's kind of a two prong thing. Um, I'll be very honest. When we we came up with the idea for in the name of grace, uh, Caitlin was in a good place, and that's what kind of spawned it. Um, we she was up in Omaha in a Oxford house. She'd been out of treatment again, 
doing pretty well. Uh, had a job and got her driver's license back and had a car. She would come back and back and forth, uh, doing pretty good. And we were really feeling blessed and thankful. And uh, there was a thing called the chat series, and it was three different women came to Kansas City at the Kaufman Center and did a chat. And one of them was a, a lady by the name of Liz Murray. And Liz had written a book called Homeless or uh, Breaking Dawn, Homeless to Harvard. And it was her own personal story being raised by addicts and kind of growing up as a street kid in New York. Uh, and she told her whole story, and I was just mesmerized mm. by it. It was just so motivating. The very next night, uh, my wife Anise and I were going to a sporting KC game, and we're walking from our car to the, to the thing, and I just had this overwhelming feeling. I just looked at her and said, how come we're not doing something to help the recovery world? Mm. I think it's time we really think about giving back. We've really been blessed. And she said, you're right. Why aren't we? And so it kind of started with that, and I didn't have any idea what it looked like, what it was going to be, what it was going to be called. Um, one thing I wanted to do was work towards removing the stigma of addiction, and then the other was to maybe inspire families to have hope, you know, to learn to not enable yet be supportive, you know, that you can you can really give tough love, and it's very challenging to wrap your head around that. You want to enable, they're your child, you want to protect them. But, uh, you know, people come in, in their deep, dark addiction and have to find their own bottom. And to let your child find bottom can be very challenging. Um, and uh, what we had learned was that in the Kansas City, Missouri area, there were really no Oxford houses on the Missouri side. They were really prevalent on the Kansas side of the metro area. And I really didn't know why. I, I've been in real estate a long time. I wanted to see, like, were these owned by individual private real estate investors? If so, I'd like to own a few. How do we get some going in Kansas City? Obviously, there's a need. Um, and there wasn't anybody to talk to. And we simultaneously got invited to uh, Friends of Recovery, or Fora, is the organization in Kansas that really helps promote Oxford Houses and helps run the Oxford Houses. We got invited to their annual banquet. And so on the invitation, and it was from a lady that was a short-time sponsor of my daughter's, and she was very involved in Fora. So she sent us this. On the invitation was the all about Fora and the executive director. So I called her. We sat down. She said, well, in, in Missouri, there's no funding for outreach workers. So there's nobody to help not only open houses, there's nobody to help the houses stay sit stable and solid. And they're, they're in deep, deep need of outreach. And I said, well, what does that require? She said, well, it requires money. I said, okay, well, I guess we've got to figure out how to raise money. So uh, my wife came up with an ac acronym of In the Name of Grace. We enlisted uh, uh, three others, uh, very good friends of ours, Doug. Uh, Doug Blue and Nancy Whitworth, a married couple here in the Northland, um, they had experience with addiction in their family. Uh, Doug worked in the mental health field, and we just thought they could be a great help to us. And then another gentleman, uh, Michael Fox, who was a young guy, uh, financial guru, big heart, uh, didn't know at the time he had any addiction in his family, but he just jumped on for his love of us. And uh, we just set out to figure out how to raise funds to get outreach going in Kansas City. And mm. it kind of spun from that. We we went to the uh, Fora Gala to meet gentlemen from Oxford, and they were literally, it's a fun story, and they tell it. Uh, the gentleman's name is Dan Hahn. They were walking out the door, and I, I, I heard they were leaving. I literally almost tackled them out the door and said, hey, my name's Rob Elsie. We're starting a foundation. We want to help you guys. You know, they hear this a lot, right? And they're mm -hmm. like, okay. Well, and then we followed up, and... Uh, you know, within a year we had a contract and we were making things happen. So mm. it's a very unique situation. I'm very proud to say it's the only privately funded contract with Oxford House in the entire country. Uh, that the relationship between in the name of Grace yeah. and Oxford House. Yeah. So let's let's just let's assume that some people are listening that don't sure. really know the Oxford House uh, 
history yeah. or or how they function. Sure. So let's why don't you give just a little bit of the Oxford history? Yeah. Then then point us specifically to how you sure. partner with yeah. them. It, uh, yeah, yeah. Because if you're not so, familiar, if you're not yeah. in the world of recovery, it may be a name that means nothing right. to you. Uh, Oxford houses are sober living houses, and I think I think it gets a little confused because like if you go back to the beginning of the AA days, you know, like, so the big book or AA started in 1935. Right. But there was, there was the Oxford movement <laughs> that had some influence with Bill Wilson, I think yes. he founded AA, yes. but this is totally different. Correct. The two are completely but, it, but it's so, be, yes. you, it's so easy to associate it them is. because they're it connected is. to, to the is. recovery yeah. world. Right. So, Oxford House, again, they're sober living houses. What makes them extremely unique is they're uh, independently ran by the residents. So there is no hired individual. There is no Oxford employee that lives in the house. They're literally democratically ran. And this was started in like 75, yeah, something like, like that? 1975, yes, by a gentleman named Paul Malloy. And Paul was a Capitol Hill attorney that self-proclaimed alcoholic, a drunk, as he would say, uh, had lost pretty much everything in his life, got into treatment, uh, was living in what was literally a halfway house uh, for people coming, you know, trying to work their way back into life. And it was in a, um, it had lost its funding. And him and some of the gentlemen in the house went to the owner of the house that could we continue to lease this house? We don't have anywhere to go. We promise we'll run it like it's our own and, and do a good job. And that was Oxford House One. It was in Silver Springs, Maryland back in the 70s. So from that became this model of the 10 traditions, which is very much modeled after the 12 steps. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they vary, they're very uh, congruent and, and they run parallel with each other. So it, um, what they learned is they could open up these houses, they'd take a few people with long-term sobriety, get them into the house, bring in the newcomer, and, you know, as in the 12th step, I mean, your, your goal is to help that newcomer through his journey and, you know, fortifying your own journey. And mm -hmm. so, you know, they say you come for yourself and you stay for others. Mm. And you're welcome to stay in an Oxford house as long as you want, as long as you're giving back to the newcomer and feeling that you're being of value. You know, if you feel mm -hmm. that you're not really being of value, it might be time that you go on with your sobriety in a, in a different method. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so they're very scalable because they're owned by an ind independent real estate investor. There will be chapters, and chapters will have somewhere between 12 and 20 houses. And then the chapters has a group of officers, and that's who kind of governs it. And that's mm -hmm. all overseen by an, a gentleman who, or a lady who would be called the outreach coordinator. And they're the hired person from Oxford. And they live in the state. A lot of times they'll live in one of the houses. They don't have to. It is required that they are an alumni. And in fact, anyone that works for Oxford House, Inc. is not only in recovery, all but one person is an alumni of the houses out of the several hundred they employ. Mm -hmm. uh, so it really is an organization of it of itself. It's nationwide. There's how many Oxford houses do you think? Gosh, uh, just uh, estimate. 3,300, 3,400. In America. 30, in, it, worldwide, but predominantly in the U.S. Okay. In 31 states, I believe. Okay. And so let's just take somebody who, you know, winds up in, in a rehab. Yep. Or, you know, is is has to do something to avoid jail time or For prison sure. prison time. Yeah, yeah. And they they need some help staying sober. Yep. So they would they would will willingly sign up to be hundred percent. Yeah. If you're not ready to be there, then you're yeah. not. You, you have to go through an interview process, and they've got they're very good at, in the interview process to see are you doing this for you or are you doing this because somebody's telling you to. Right. And if you're doing it because you're you're you've got even if you've got one day clean. 
you can be accepted in, or today is day one. You can be accepted in, but you got to really have a willingness to to get sober or stay sober mm-hmm. uh, and work on yourself and be part of a, of a family that's that's going to help you. So peer recovery is really what it's about. Mm. Uh, yeah, there's an interview process. It takes a majority vote. Uh, typically, it's 100%, you know, um, uh, and you're voted in, and you, you you pay your deposit. You pay a weekly uh, earned ex- expenses shared or EES. They don't mm-hmm. pay rent; they pay weekly EES because they all it all gets pooled and pays the rent out of that. Um, and you know, pays the utilities, keeps the lights on, puts some basic groceries in in the pantry. Um, yeah. You know, you move in if you don't have clothing, you don't have a job. The guy, you don't have the ability to drive. The guys and or if gals in the house will help you. You know, they're, they pull together three or four houses. It seems like we've got them in clusters, and they do a good job of grabbing guys, grabbing gals, taking them to meetings as need be, helping them go find work. Uh, it really, really works well. Yeah, so you have men's houses, women's, women's houses, houses, and women with children. And women with children. children. Mm-hmm. Okay, and men yep. with children. Wow. Yep. yep. And they, they're going to... They're going to go to meetings. They are typically required to work some type of a recovery program. Mm -hmm. You know, traditionally it's a 12-step type program. I don't think it necessarily has to be. We all find recovery in different ways. You know, there's some other great recovery methods out there Mm -hmm. that I think are acceptable as long as you're working some type of a recovery program. Mm -hmm. Uh, They do have to work, pay their own way. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've got a family member or somebody that needs to help you out the first week or two till you find work, we're blessed that the economy is pretty easy to get a a decent paying job and you can afford to live on your own, you know, with even even a, you know, fast food job these days. And, you know, in Oxford House, it's pretty cheap, cheap way to live. Um, And you can stay as long as you want. As long Mm -hmm. as you're working a program, you're not disruptive, you don't drink and drug. If you drink or drug, or you're disrupted. They'll call an emergency meeting. They'll test you if need be. If it's behavior, they do random drug testing they, at the houses. A lot of them do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if, if they're it's a solid house and they've got a long term recovery, they may not. If they if they wind up with a problem and someone relapses, they may go back to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's a very tough situation. If you relapse, they're going to call you out on it. You're going to have 60 minutes to get your stuff and get out. Um, they're learning to protect their environment. Mm-hmm. So as much as they love their brothers and sisters that relapse, they have to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, can they once they get sober, they can reapply to another house. Mm. So you're not completely out on the streets, you know. Yeah. Uh, but it's yeah, it's it's a little bit of tough love. Yeah. 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 For sure. Interesting. So then, so that's the Oxford model. Yep. Model. Yep. So then, how specifically does in the name of grace help? The sure. Oxford. How do you partner with that? Yeah, it's a very unique partnership. Um, in most of the states where there are Oxford houses, uh, the state has block federal block grants that are allocated to Oxford, and there's a contract between Oxford and the state. The outreach employees were typically employees of Oxford House, but it's funded through the state and it's through a contract. So what makes us unique is we have that contract now for the entire state of Missouri in the name of Grace. And we basically, they have two outreach workers now here in Missouri, one in Kansas City, one in Southwest Missouri. Um, you know, they have a salary, they have living expenses, they have you know, operating expenses, um, as well as some overhead with their, their overseeing bosses and training and things like that. And that all gets taken care of by Oxford House. And every month we get a bill and we simply write the check to fund it. Currently, we do 90% of it through private fundraising. Uh, we've been blessed with some small grants, private grants, you know, and foundation grants uh, here locally. Nothing from any municipality, nothing from any government source as of yet. Um, you know, we're 
uh, Oxford House is working well in the Kansas City, Missouri area now with, with Clay County, Platt County, Jackson County drug courts. You know, so we got a lot of residents, like you say, who are either coming out of incarceration or able to avoid incarceration mm-hmm. by getting into a sober living situation. Um, and it's it's just it's phenomenal. We've grown from when we first took over there. I think were nine houses. They closed it all the way down to four. They closed five houses, uh, moved one house, and then we are now up to what will be twenty five houses in Kansas City with a total of forty four across the state. So, okay. Yeah, two hundred and two hundred plus beds here in Kansas City for men and women to go to bed tonight sober and safe. Wow. Yeah, it's awesome. That's amazing. Good work. So. Um, I'm going to do a quick plug. Uh, those of you who are listening, um, if you're a regular listener, consider being a part of our support team. You can go to the website, spiritualityadventures.com. And uh, we have just a small team of supporters that make this happen. So we appreciate those of you who are regulars and jump on there and, and join the support team. And uh, we are constantly putting out some great content. And I love the recovery world. So this is one of my favorite uh, topics to uh, interview people on. So you mentioned, Rob, about stigma, and let's let's chat a little bit sure. about stigma. Yeah, and I, you know, obviously, like, just just maybe a little a little segue into that. Um, you know, as a pastor who wasn't an alcoholic <laughs> for most of my life, I always tried to you know, either partner with the AA world. We ended up starting a a thing called Celebrate Recovery at at the church that I pastored several years ago and ended up helping a lot of people, right? And I had read the big book and I had, you know, I was familiar with the 12-step program. Never thought that I would, uh, you know, end up being a person in that world, like coming out of recovery, you know, or in recovery, coming coming out of the pastor world into recovery. Um, and then I, you know, for me in the pastor world, I never saw people with these issues as, stig- as, as stigmas. It was like, for me, it was just always an opportunity for the, for the church to love and to be present and to, to help however we could. Right. But having now experienced it <laughs> in a pretty dramatic way, you know, my, my meltdown and all that, I've become far more acutely aware of the stigma issues. Uh, and then what was interesting was there was a guy, and we, we talked about this when we chatted offline, but um, I forgot his name, but the guy that founded Shatterproof. Yeah, Gary Mendenhall. Gary Mendenhall. Yeah. Uh, I, I met Gary when he came to Kansas City a couple of years ago, I think, maybe, and... Um, he does a lot about exposing stigma, he does. and he he mentioned two statistics that stuck with me. Tell me if these sound accurate. Fifty um, percent of the population does not want to have a neighbor who is in recovery, like Probably as a accurate. neighbor. Probably accurate. And then about the same percentage, about fifty percent of the people do not want somebody in their family marrying somebody that is in recovery. So I'm thinking that's pretty hefty. Isn't it? That's pretty hefty stigma stuff, right? Yeah. So like if, so like I'm in recovery and, uh, and so I was thinking, huh, well, how's this going to play out the rest of my life? <laughs> right. For <laughs> right? sure. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and of course I'm, 
I'm contributing to the recovery world as, as I'm in it myself. So yeah, talk a little bit about stigma. What, what is, what's your experience with that? Uh, how have you tried to, how have you tried to work with that issue? I get the opportunity to speak publicly, not as often as I'd like, uh, but when I do, I, I usually start out with a story, and it's a little bit of a shock, and I'll share that if it's okay. Yeah. It shock the viewers. You know, I'll, I'll tell the story. My daughter was very blessed. Um, she was very fortunate, um, very privileged. You know, she grew up in the Northland. We lived over an area called the Fairways, literally on a golf course, you know, nice house, nice neighborhood in a cul-de-sac. Uh, 16th birthday, she got a little Mustang convertible. You know, she was an athlete, lettered her sophomore year. And I tell the story that it was probably maybe 11th grade when she probably, you know, whatever Friday it was, she put her letter jacket on, grabbed her backpack and got in her convertible and drove to school thinking, I'm going to go to a party tonight and I'm probably going to try marijuana for the first time. I doubt she was thinking, I can't wait to do that because I hope I eventually wind up living homeless on the streets, selling myself for methamphetamines. Now, again, that's a shocking statement, and I apologize, but that's the reality of her life. Um, did she probably did she make a bad decision to try marijuana illegally, an illicit drug that was illegal at the time, especially for someone her age? Yes, she did. Was she probably in company of people, kids that I probably am friends with today that are now adults that are married, college-educated, have families? Yes, she was. Were they predisposed to be an addict? No, they weren't. Was she? Yes, she was. Uh, it is a mental health uh, situation. It is not a criminal justice situation. She was predisposed to have addictive tendencies uh, in her DNA. Uh, it, it's Unfortunately, it's in her, in her biological mom. Uh, it goes back deep in my own family. Um, and she just wasn't able to recreationally use alcohol or weed. Uh, and both of those spin her into other down a path of other drugs mm. and uh, and you know you build up a resistance and tolerance and your your dopamine receptors get damaged and more is always what you actually become addicted to is more mm. and uh you know it takes, and the more does less and less and it less. does it does it and just it, it does. gets to a point where the fun's gone right and, and you know, it, for my life has become unmanageable uh -huh, right and uh -huh. um i i always tell people i said you know if i told you my daughter had childhood cancer or juvenile diabetes you, this you would have a different look on your face as I'm talking to you. It'd, be, it'd probably be of more empathy. Uh, if you have addiction in your family, you probably have empathy for me. I tell you, I'm raising two small kids. You probably have empathy for me. But what you have to understand is the only disease I know of that takes somebody that has a lot of potential, maybe everything in the world ahead of them, and it can take them and demonize them and criminalize them. Mm. If you're a person of faith, it is literally the devil has grabbed, has grappled you and has a hold of you and doesn't want to let go. You know, there's some mm. wonderful poem about addiction, how it's talking to the person. I'm sure you've read it. Mm. You know, it's like, I am, I am your best friend. I am your worst nightmare. I mm. own you, you know, and it really is. And it's, uh, you know, no one ever would choose that lifestyle. You know, somebody of a recovery, mm -hmm. I'm sure you can attest that, you mm -hmm. know, the, the things you had to go through to get to where you were, as a blessing as it is that you've gone through them, it wasn't mm -hmm. anything you'd ever wish upon anyone. No, no, and it... <laughs> Right, and yeah. I'm I'm still looking for the the blessing, you know. The I'm still holding on to the promises, as we like to say in the <laughs> in sure. the recovery world, right? For sure. Um, yeah, I know it. It's a taker. It's a it taker. Is a taker. It it's is a, a taker. taker. It is, and it turns yeah. turns people into narcissistic sociopaths. Oh. Oh. And, uh, well, you're just living to get high. That's all that. That's it. That's all that. That's it. Nothing that's all else happens. matters at a certain point, and it can. It's all consuming. Yeah. Um, 
plan your day around it. It, it does. It's, and it's, it's all consuming. It's, it's, and some people are doing that and still showing up to work. And some people aren't. You, you know? know, Fred, they are. And I think that's something we need to think about is, is we, again, we, we, we talk about addiction, you know, and alcoholism, which obviously is just another form of addiction. Um, you know, we look at the alcohol as the guy who's crashed his car, or maybe hurt somebody, lost his job because of it. We look at, you know, an addict, like, again, if somebody's living on the streets or they're, you know, they're selling, they're, they're stealing from their family to buy drugs or, you know, robbing copper out of houses or whatever. Um, we live in this crazy, crazy world right now where uh, when if you really do step forward and do a personal inventory of yourself and really think about what consumes a good portion of your time, you know, there are algorithms in social media that, that are literally designed to intervene our dopamine sensors. I mean, literally addict mm-hmm. us to, to the social media. I mean, mm-hmm. and why? Because things are being sold on social media. I mean, mm-hmm. it's marketing at its finest, mm-hmm. right? Algorithm, marketing algorithms designed to, to intercept our, our, our dopamine sensors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think a lot of us struggle with different types of addiction that we don't see as addiction because it doesn't fit in the traditional sense. Right. I think everybody could benefit from reading the big book. I think the 12 steps applies to anybody trying to look for a spiritual yeah. way through a higher power to better their life. Yeah. You know, yeah. I really do. And, uh, so I, I think, you know, when you really want to stigmatize it, you have to take a deep look at yourself mm. and, and what you do on a daily basis. And does this serve my future self or does it not? You know, if it doesn't, yeah. then it probably is something that could be worked on. And maybe it's an addictive trait. Maybe it's an addictive behavior. Right. You know, maybe it's social media. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's, who knows? You yeah. know, binge watching is a big thing these yeah. days. Yeah, we. I like to... And I think I, I've I've had a few addiction experts on here, and and we can talk about substance addictions. So where you're ingesting things mm-hmm. like drugs, alcohol, mm-hmm. food, food, sugar, yeah. But then the then you have these behavioral addictions For sure. that that really play on the same. Neurosystems, hundred percent. Right? It's, it's activate all the looking same for those dopamine hits, systems. Right? Yeah, a quick, cheap dopamine. It hit. could be shopping. It could be gaming. 100%. It could be sex. It yeah. could be. Um, and we live in an instant ga- world. Right? Gambling it could be OCD behavior 100%. where you're just like, f- yeah. you know, obsessing over hundred percent. You know, yeah. things and yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and then wh- what? What? I, I don't think most Americans, this is just my opinion, having pastored a few thousand over the years and and then having been in the recovery community for three and a half years or so, I don't think most Americans buy into the disease model for, for addiction. And I think that's a part of the stigma. Because I think bottom line, most people think it's a, it's a moral failure. And, you know, my... My uh, issues were plastered all over the world, literally through, you know, as moral failure, right? And it was an insomnia issue that I was trying to deal with that ultimately led to prescription Xanax. So like what your daughter, you know, the benzo, that's the benzo world. And then I unfortunately, you know, stupidly added alcohol with the benzos. And so now all of a sudden every night I'm doing alcohol and Xanax, which is a horrible combo. But um, I didn't have any fear of that. I had done some marijuana and some recreational drugs as a 14, 15, 16 year old, came to Christ and 
quit without any yeah. help and so figure that was yeah you're- and live the rest of my life up until I was 55 not being an addict or an alcoholic but all of a sudden when I was on the Xanax and the alcohol every night for over two years I was an addict and an, you know an alcoholic basically and uh, and I I think that I probably was I probably always have had an addictive personality there's probably Sure. Probably some DNA down there rattling around that yeah, yeah. would open that door for me. But I didn't have any fear of it, and I think maybe that was a part of the the problem too. Is that by the time I I, I was chasing sleep, so I wasn't chasing anything but sleep. I was just trying to sleep. I had never slept very very well, but all of that resulted in some bad moral decisions on my part because your frontal lobe gets compromised, right? So people don't realize it, but, um, you know, addiction affects the prefrontal lobe, which is where we manage our emotions and do our best decision-making. So when you compromise your prefrontal lobe... I love lobe, that word, compromise, because that's you know, what it is. Yeah, yeah. you compromise yeah. it. You, you just don't make good decisions, and your decisions soon start being driven by your addiction yep. right yep. and your emotions too as yep. well and the addiction so, so becomes so strong that you can rationalize anything right so most americans i think think well that's a moral decision you're you're a bad person <sighs> yeah um you you know and i i you know there's some people that just don't have any grace for that at all i have a, a take on that if i can using share using that name grace right there's yeah, a lot of people that don't have any grace for this I'll tell you stuff what, and grace <laughs> is an acronym that stands for giving recovering addicts a chance to evolve oh nice so and 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 man just so appropriate right because we all could use a little grace once upon and, uh-huh. and grace in the bible is god's unmerited gift to us or upon us and uh, we we didn't earn it. He just gives it to us. We just coming out of Easter, you know what a mm-hmm. what a true, I mean, just uh, proclamation of, of of the grace He's given us. Mm-hmm. He gave His own Son for us, you know. Um, at any rate, I, it's I I have had the opportunity to listen to a gentleman named Doctor Stuart Gitlow, and Doctor Gitlow is one of the foremost addiction psychologists in the country, um, and he made a really good point several years ago, you know, recreational marijuana is being legalized pretty widespread across the country here in the state of Missouri. Uh, and I, I'm not going to say whether I approve it, not approve it. That's not the point. But what Dr. Gitlow mentioned was that um, when we legalize marijuana, he didn't say it with, he said, when we mar- legalize marijuana, we will simply have more people addicted to marijuana. And here's why. There are plenty of people that have an addictive tendency, addictive personality, or it's in their DNA. They're of that 20, 25% of Americans, uh, of humans, and they don't try marijuana simply because it's illegal. Maybe, you know, it maybe it'll interfere with your job if you're tested, you know, for your employment or what you do for your employment, or maybe you just don't want to be a lawbreaker. There are people that actually follow the laws. They don't speed. They don't do this. They, me, you know, I, I, I've had a few speeding tickets over the years, so there are a few laws that I find uh, compromisable. Uh, but for me, marijuana was one that was not. It was an illegal substance, and I just didn't see the need to, to break the law to, to impair my mind. You know, I had alcohol, and I've been, a, been able to be a casual drinker most of my life. Uh, but I will tell you, um, once it becomes legal and you try it, you're going to have a percentage of people that will become addicted to it. Mm. And a good way to explain it is if you're a casual drinker and you enjoy drinking to become intoxicated, not because it's a social thing, I have a drink when I'm having to No, I drink with my friends to get drunk because I enjoy it. It numbs the pain, whatever it is, whatever excuse you use, whatever it is it does for you. You can achieve that same feeling so much faster with marijuana use 
that if it takes you 8 to 10, 12 beers, if you're a beer drinker and you've built a tolerance over a 20, 30-year period to get to a, a level of intoxication, you know, when you first try marijuana, it's probably going to do a lot faster. Would that lead to an addiction? It possibly could because you're able to get to that state a lot quicker, a lot easier, and now it's not illegal, so it's not a moral mm-hmm. issue. Mm-hmm. So is addiction a moral issue? No, because you can do it legally. Um, people have been consuming alcoholic beverages since the beginning of alcoholic beverages. Mm-hmm. You know, There are statistics that show for the next two generations after the prohibition, back in the 20s, the next two generations had a lesser population, considerably lesser population of alcohol, registered alcoholism, and al- alcohol related events, deaths, driving accidents, things like that over the next two generations. So it did have an impact. Uh, Not having access to legal uh, narcotics did have an impact that we'll see over the next two decades, over the next two generations, where Mm. we will have more people become addicted. So is is it a moral issue? No. It it, it can start as something very simple. Mm. And you know, if, if, if it's in your DNA, it's in your DNA. Mm. Um, I follow a gentleman that, uh, 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 I won't. I won't say here because I don't know well enough to give him the credit for it. But he believes that most. And he's in recovery, and he's also an entrepreneur, and he's an entrepreneurial coach. He believes that most addiction is trauma based, mm. and there's some really good thought to that. Because mm. if you really do a self inventory, you can think back. We all have trauma, you know, and it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be that you were molested or beaten or anything. It just, mm-hmm. you know, something traumatic has happened to you. Maybe you lost a loved one. Maybe just uh, maybe you were overweight and bullied. I mean, mm-hmm. Who knows? Uh, and, and it, trying to get rid of that pain, you know, can really sp- mm-hmm. spin into addiction, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think, I think de destigmatizing is a huge deal. And I do, I do think the disease model uh, is a, is a good way to help the average population sure. uh, begin to have a little bit more empathy with those that are, wrestling with addictions i think also um just just you know if you've had a family member or a friend or a loved one um that has gone through this um they're they're in a battle that's like a it's a a disease model works really really well so if you think about somebody fighting cancer for sure you know I, i remember gary who founded the shatterproof he tells he started off with the story of his son who, you know, started wrestling with an addiction as a teenager and then a neighbor's son who was battling cancer. Both the same age, both from the same family, both from the same sense of privilege and resources. But the resources that were rallied around the, the, the cancer versus the resources that were rallied around the addiction were uh, completely worlds apart worlds apart worlds apart worlds apart so uh we rally around diseases you know and start start foundations around diseases and all that kind of stuff and uh but yet that addiction is one that uh, it probably still comparatively has a lot less money oh my god a lot less money going into helping people recover from addictions. I still, I think still because of that stigma, because of the moral component to people judge it with. It's still viewed and and looked at as a choice, Mm -hmm. you know, and no one ever chooses cancer. Clearly not. Right. Right. Yet 
we do choose to live an unhealthy lifestyle or diabetes right. or I mean, yeah. but yet we do choose to live very unhealthy lifestyles mm-hmm. in this country obesity is probably the number one killer honestly mm-hmm. of Americans and that's that very much is a choice you know that mm-hmm. uh, you know as you're unhealthy and you you open yourself up to diseases and and but, things. But at the same time, it, there are genetic components to that as well, 100%. Right? Yes, know? there are. Yes, there are. I know. Are. There can, you know, if you... 100%. I mean, you, you, can, you can trace diabetes gen, generationally. Oh, you can gosh, place, yeah. Yeah, trace obesity yeah. generationally. Yeah. Yeah. There's people who can eat the same crap and be skinny. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And people who end up being obese eating the For same sure. diet. For sure. And it's all genetics. Yeah. And so yeah. there's... So I think I think there's a lot more to the disease model than we ever realize when it comes to a lot of our problems. For sure. Definitely nurture for sure. nature. For sure. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Both both the nature part, which would be the DNA part, but then the, the nurture, the yeah. context, the environment, the choices. They play together, you know. So well, um so tell people about how they could you know, learn about what you're doing, sure. connect with it, That's that great. kind Thank of thing. You. Yeah, yeah, we have a website, which is just www.inthenameofgrace.org. Uh, you can get a lot of information about kind of how we started, my story, stories of some of our board members, um, as well as um, how you can donate. Uh, again, we are 100% privately funded. We throw one huge fundraiser every year, which is coming up this fall. It's at the American Royal Barbecue which is the city, Kansas City, Missouri's largest outdoor party. Um, we raise a lot of funds. We have sponsorships available as well as just tickets at the gate to get in. Uh, we always have the M80s, which is a local 80s cover band. Uh, ah. Really top-rated cover or 80s cover band. Uh, they travel <laughs> travel the whole country, actually. Um, and there are entertainment, um, you know, world, world-class, award-winning barbecue served up. And uh, have to be very honest, full disclosure, it is not a sober party. Um, it's the American Royal, so yeah, the, the, the drinks are involved, <laughs> uh, which is awesome. I will tell you, we have a residence of the Oxford House, people that are in long-term recovery, they come out and they volunteer and they run the food lines for us and stuff, and they love being involved. And the very next night, we have a sober party for all the residents to come out. But yeah, it's our big fundraiser. What so time get, of year is this? That is uh, September or October 1st, the Friday or the Last Friday of October or September, which I think is actually October first okay. this year. So you can go at the website and say, get the save to date and see how to sponsor if, or buy tickets. If somebody's listening to this and they think, "Oh man, I've got a son or a daughter or a friend that might," I think maybe the Oxford House system would work for them. What sure. what would they do? What are the steps they would uh, take? Easiest way is go to www.oxfordvacancies.com. Just spell that out. Um, and you can see that where their houses that have openings for men and women and, you know, and likewise, uh, and go online and fill out an application and, and set up interviews. Um, if, if you have a loved one that is in dire need, um, and the interview is until Sunday and they need a bed tonight that you can possibly get an emergency interview set up or they can couch somebody, especially if they're coming out of jail or something they need, they need something immediately. They can usually work with you. Uh, go to our website. All this will be listed on there as well, uh, as well as my contact info. I love talking to family members. I do. I've, I've been through it for a long time. I, I have a little philosophy uh, that, you know, bad things happen to a lot of us. We all have bad things we experience. And I think if all of us just took that bad experience, and if you get out of your circle of pity, because you can drown in your own tears, right? Mm-hmm. Sit there and just, why me, why me, why me? It's like, what's happening to you isn't happening to you. It's happening. You're just being affected by it. It isn't mm-hmm. personal. It's not about mm-hmm. you. And realize that this is a problem. If I'm dealing with it as a father, 
there are probably other fathers dealing with it too. Hmm. Uh, get involved. Get into an Al-Anon group. Call me. I'll help you find some resources. If everybody did their part, we could wipe this out. I personally have a goal that somehow, some way, I'm going to have to live to be 100 years old. I'm going to see the extinction of methamphetamine addiction in my lifetime. Uh, so I'm going to have to live long enough to make that happen. <laughs> but uh, uh, I have some ideas and thoughts on it. But yeah, it, just get involved. And, and uh, it, it, it is a disease. And if you, you know, just don't be ashamed by it. Don't be ashamed if, if you're in somebody who is in need of recovery. Don't be ashamed if you have a family member, a loved one, or a friend that's in need of recovery. Uh, it affects a lot more of us than, than you realize. Mm. I think being open about it helps. Yeah, you bet. What? Tell the, the website one more time, In the Name of Grace. Sure, www.inthenameofgrace.org. And so you just spell it out. In uh, the Name of Grace. Grace, yeah. Uh, .org. Okay. Yeah, you can go out there and, again, some good resources on it as well and just some good stories about us and some media stuff. And, uh, yeah. Excellent, excellent. Well, I love what you're doing. And, Thank you. Uh, I was I was delighted to make this connection Likewise. and talk to you. Likewise. I have a, f- a friend that I know served on your board for a little while. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I have, you know, I, I'm in relationship with several people who are living in Oxford houses, and you know the thing that I, just to maybe, you know, speak to that stigma issue again is the thing that I've realized because I, I I'm I'm in relationship with with physicians that are in recovery, lawyers that are in recovery, pastors that are in recovery, business leaders, CEOs that are in recovery, you know it. It's it's it is not a discriminator of persons. You, the uh, addiction, alcoholism, these things cut across the every kind of strata, every social yeah, strata, racially, socioeconomically, yeah, everything. It does not care. It's not a respecter of persons, and uh, and it uh, it does not discriminate. No, and so, um, so and I and I just think you know leaning into it, talking about it, owning it. Um, realizing that people who are actually in recovery, working their programs, are some of the best human beings on the planet. Amen. On the planet. Amen. And the thing that I've realized as a pastor is, if the whole world would work the program, the whole world would be a better Wouldn't place. It though, seriously, right? I mean, just the I personal mean, inventory part of it. Yeah. And there's just not a part of it that wouldn't be a benefit to anybody. Amen. Even if you wrestle with just eating too much before you go to bed or, you know, any yeah. any number of sort of nagging bad habits yeah. that we can develop yeah. over time. Yeah. Um, and just being a better person, yep. a better husband, a better I, wife, I, a better parent, a better coworker, a better owner, whatever your world is, yeah. uh, these, these recovery programs are just brilliant when it comes to being better humans it is it, uh, you know i'm blessed that so many of my close contacts are people in the recovery community because of the work i do um and i always start off saying you know i have more respect for people in recovery than anybody else on the planet i wake up and i have my list of what i have to do i have to get the kids ready yada 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 people in recovery they wake up and the very first thing they have to do is tell themselves it's a day they choose to be clean and sober and that's first and foremost in their life and they whatever resources they have to pull on to make that happen and that's that's just incredible amount of respect for that. And yeah. Just and yeah, they live a different lifestyle because of it. You want brutal honesty? Go talk to somebody. In your right. Memory. They'll that's give it right. to you. Right. That's right. <laughs> that's what's been so refreshing. Actually, it's just it's just really yeah, refreshing. I have some amazing friends in long term recovery that have stories that would just make the average person cringe. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, thank you, Rob, for, thank you for it. our, our uh, time together. Thanks for doing this interview. Really appreciate it. Thanks for the work you're doing in the name of grace. I, um, I am just uh, so grateful to the recovery community, to the people who show up. Um, we can't do it alone. We need each other. We need community. For sure. And I, community I, is the word. I appreciate you um, giving your your time, energy, and money to this. Uh, yeah, it's it's what it's it's uh it's become a just a belief that I was put on this earth to do it. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thanks everybody. Thank you for tuning into Spirituality Adventures, and uh, we'll see you next time. This concludes today's episode. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Remember. If you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Remember to like, share, or subscribe to the social media platform that you're using. And then go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, and make a one-time donation. Or you can subscribe monthly and receive our special bonus content. Thanks so much.